different activation channels, whether it's programmatic, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's an event offline, whether it's everyone heads down to Cannes and we get a beautiful tent on the beach or we get a boat in the harbour. Whatever it is, it's about getting in front of the right people at the right time with the right message. Hello and welcome to Confessions of a B2B Marketer. And in this episode, we do something a little different. We have Declan Malkin on, who is an ABM expert. And we have a fictional case study of a pharma company that sells software. Sorry, we have a software company that sells software to pharmaceutical companies. And that's a case study. And Declan masterfully runs us through how he would approach that from an ABM standpoint. We're going to jump into that in a second. Before that, we must give a shout out to Fame. Now, as you're hearing this, Fame is on the cusp of rebranding slightly. So we were a B2B podcast agency or the B2B podcast agency, rebranding to the content first demand gen agency. And what that essentially means is that alongside your podcast, if you're trying to build Fame in any B2B niche, you really need one of two other things, or ideally both, which is A, you need an organic social presence. We need the host of the show or someone else from your business to be posting regularly on social platforms in order to get attention. That's the top. That's number one. We call that fame social. Number two, we call fame email, which is the best way to convert attention from that organic social audience that you're building is to send people onto an email list. So we call this fame email. We have a separate little brand called SaaS Marketer Weekly, which is fame's version of this. So essentially an email list slightly different brand from your B2B company that we collect the emails and then we drive the traffic from both of those. If you have both, great. If not, one is fine. To down to the third stage, which is Fame Podcast, which is the thing we've been doing for four years. So we're expanding. If you're interested in any of those three or multiple, please go to fame.so, request a proposal, say that you came from confessions of a B2B marketer. Let's jump into this episode now. Declan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. So what I want to do today is a case study on what I feel like is a dark art, like something that if you went to Hogwarts, maybe this is the strategy they teach in Professor Snape's class, because for me, it's unknown, but can be very powerful. So if we're happy with that, I'd love to create a fictional company, and then we can run through what you would advise as an ABM strategy. Does that sound like a plan? We could try. Let's see where we get to. But uh, yeah, we can invent a fictional company and see what it all looks like when we bring it all together. Okay. So let's say it's a, a company that makes this B2B. They make software for pharmaceutical companies. And they have 200 employees, $10 million in annual revenue. And they come to you, Declan, and they're like, we want to trial ABM. What's the first thing that you do? Well, I'd probably ask them a few questions really to see whether we would, what we consider to be whether they are ABM ready or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of people are jumping on the bandwagon of ABM and camp-based marketing and the other names that people call it, camp-based you know, experience, camp-based engagement, et cetera, et cetera. But we take a lot of time to see whether the companies are actually ABM ready. And that has kind of two parts to it. Part number one is whether or not the kind of companies that you're targeting and you're looking to target, whether they warrant or not that level of investment in ABM. And when we say investment, it's not only money, whether you're using an agency, whether you're doing it yourself internally, but also whether you have the resources internally to be able to set up an ABM motion, as it's quite different to other marketing motions. So that'd be part number one. And then part number two 
would be whether or not you as a business are ABM mature enough in order to do ABM. And the maturity doesn't actually mean that you're kind of an immature company. It's not a negative connotation or a negative classification. What it means is, you know, we work with companies that, you know, multi-billions, other multi-huge companies, but ABM isn't can be a new thing to them because many, many companies have been doing other types of marketing over the course of the last few years very successfully. And then they may come to ABM but are not necessarily ready for ABM in terms of having the people set up, the structures, the processes, the alignment with their sales departments. So we kind of ask lots of questions to see whether the company is ABM ready or not. If the company is not ABM ready, we do have a process to take companies through to make them ABM ready, which we'll do in another podcast episode, Tom, perhaps. Otherwise, we'll be here all day discussing ABM readiness. But let's imagine that this fictitious pharma company is ABM ready? Let's imagine that they have sufficient resources, people, money in order to do it. And let's also imagine that their target audience warrants that type of investment. Okay, so that's kind of like the entry level framework for that. How's that sound? Yeah, so just on the final point, target audience warranting a kind of investment. Are we talking about the average ACV that they bring on? Yeah, for example, so in terms of this, the average order value, the average annual contract value, the Time to market, life cycle, if it's complex life cycle, number of decision makers, buyer committee involved, all the kind of markers to say that an ABM motion is warranted in order to kind of influence the right people, get the right people around the table, start having those conversations, start generating those conversations. So I first thought I'd say, right, okay, well, which tell me a little bit about the target accounts that you decided to enter into this kind of ABM motion. We were one of the top 40 pharma companies in the world. Okay, that's a good sign. And have you got relationships with any of these top 40? Right now, we have one of them as a customer, but we have the rest of Virgin Territory. Okay, so basically one of 40 is a customer that remains 39 prospects. They kind of, you believe that they match your ideal customer. Have you done more work on that to make sure that those other 39 match your ideal customer? Have you Are you happy with your ideal customer and, and what you believe it they are and that they actually match what you want to be as a business? Yeah, we're pretty confident this one that we have closed. The deal size is is good for us. It's over a million dollars. And we feel like they're really enjoying the software. They're good. about to renew for the second year. Okay. And you think that the offer that you have in the market for that one customer is valid for the other 39? I do. Okay. Well, then let's take that as red for the purposes of this exercise. So therefore, if that's 39. And with the other 39, are they all kind of documented? You've got them in your CRM. You've got your salespeople have got any account plans. Have you got any activity ongoing with any of them? No. I mean, we have a couple of salespeople that may have contacted them, but this is kind of a new initiative after we've just signed that, that one client. So we just have the list of the 39. We, we haven't done anything else. Okay. Would it be fair to say that? What And how does your brand stack up with regards to these other companies? Are you a known brand or are you a challenger brand or are you completely unknown in the market? I would say about to become a challenger brand. Okay. But you would say that if you're about to be, you're relatively unknown and therefore you've got an issue around brand awareness, reputation into the market as well within these 39 players. Yeah, we've only been running for like three years. Okay. And therefore, there are some established players that probably have the lion size of the market. And indeed, probably, is your offer new to the market and nobody else is doing it? Or is it the case that you're going to have to 
unseat other brands that are there already in place? Slightly different to the other incumbents. Okay. So you've got something a little bit different that you can take to the market. Therefore, there'll be some work around. And have you got a value proposition that you've thought about specifically for these 39 accounts? Or have you just got a kind of a general VP that you use when you go to market? Yeah. So the VP that we have for this one existing client, we believe will apply to all the rest. Okay. So we'd probably do some work with you around that to validate that uh, value proposition to make sure that it actually resonates with the market and with those United accounts. And we probably spend a little bit of time with you digging a little bit more into those 39 accounts to see what they look like, where they are, what level of engagement you've already had with them, as you mentioned, with your CRM, with your account directors, et cetera, and then to see whether there are any commonalities amongst them so we can actually group them into subclusters potentially, because it may well be that we don't want to address all 39 in the same way. And it may well be that because pharma, although pharma is a large umbrella uh, name, indeed within pharma, there's, as you know yourself, there's lots of different subcategories within there. So it may well be the case. We may do some work with you on that, but that we'd spend a little bit of time with you work on the validation of your ICP, the validation of your account selection. And then we'd probably spend a little bit of time with you kind of prioritizing of those 39, which ones should come first in the order of the order of targeting? Okay, I'm going to jump out of character now. That makes total sense. Like if the strategy is going to be more effective, if you tailor the value prop to ideally maybe each of them or groups of them, that makes total sense. Okay, let's move to the next stage. What happens after you've collected all the information, the company's ready to roll? What's the next step? So Tom, let's take it as read that we're happy with the ICP. We're happy that we've got the right personae identified within the target accounts. We take it as read that the account selection is good. And we take it that we've actually done some work with you and we've prioritized the accounts into which ones we believe you are closer to what we call closer to revenue. So we, for whatever reason, you've got some existing contacts or we've done some insights work and we know that those companies are ready or closer to being ready to actually want to purchase something like yours, your solution. So we've done all that work. So account selection prioritization framework. We dig a bit more deeper now and do the value proposition with you. We definitely made sure that we did that work. And as you said, Tom, it's not about what it is you offer the market. It's what you offer the account. And that's probably one of the greatest secrets to great ABM is creating a value proposition that resonates with either, as you said, a cluster or indeed a single account. And it's what you mean to them, not what you mean to the market. So a lot of the companies get confused and they think, well, I've got a value proposition. And yes, you have, and that's marvelous. And your branding is absolutely tickety-boo. The question is, what does it mean for the individual accounts that you're talking to? So um, it's addressing it that way. So once all that kind of framework background is all done, we spend a bit more time with you now going to your content looking at what you've got already, because what we don't want to do is reinvent the wheel and spend an awful lot of your money developing a whole lot of content that actually doesn't need to be created because you've already got some. Most marketing teams have done a very good job creating content. So we do a content audit to see what you've got, what's missing, where do we believe there are gaps, and we tie it back to the value proposition work. We tie it back to our insights work we've done to understand you know, your company, your competitor landscape, the accounts you're looking to target, what it is that's keeping them awake at night, et cetera. So once we've got that content order, we come back to you and say, look, guys, we're going to use this, this, this. We're going to repurpose that, that, that. But we're missing some gaps here. We're going to commission this, this, this. And you say, marvelous. We'll do some of that and you can do the other bit. So once we've got that done, 
then we're now into we can now actually say right we know who we're going after we know where they live because we've done the homework we've done the insights work we know where they hang out what their main channels are so then we do what we call kind of activation planning so activation planning is where you know we kind of design a strategic plan where we outline what are the relevant channels to target these individuals within the account what are the right tactics to use to target those individuals and then we work on that to actually pull that through the account. So that's kind of an activation stage of planning, which is kind of a boring bit, really, because it has to be done. It's back office. It gets done and it gets presented to you. Once that's done, in kind of parallel, we're talking to you a little bit about that content that we mentioned earlier. And we've taken the value proposition work we've done with you. We take the insights work we've done. So we've done some insights on you, your company, your competitor landscape, your market landscape, some of the challenges that are facing uh, you and your target accounts that perhaps you don't know about. And we're looking for the key. We're looking for the key to unlock the account. And that key could be anything from there's this regulatory thing coming down the road that everyone's worried about but doesn't need to know how to solve, but you can solve it. Or, I mean, I was talking to a company the other day, the other day involved in AI for pharma, well, they've got an AI solution for pharma that, that's going to unlock an awful lot of benefits and an awful lot of cost savings for companies and profitability. So you kind of find the trying to look for the key. And that's the key thing around uniting the value proposition work and the accounts insight work is you get that data that will then feed into what's called the creative process. Now, the creative process then takes all that hard data and says, right, well, how can we build a creative that actually talks to the VP, to the value proposition, talks to the account, talks to the right people within the account, uses their language and unlocks the door, so to speak, to that account. That's an awful lot of work said in quite a little bit of time, but that basically will get you to a position where what we tend to call it as an account experience, which is a whole series of online and offline assets that are created all wrapped around the envelope of your issue, your target accounts. And then we can then play that using what we talked about, our activation planning. We can then play that into the account through different activation channels, whether it's programmatic, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's an event offline, whether it's everyone heads down to Cannes and we get a beautiful tent on the beach or we get a boat in the harbor. Whatever it is, it's about getting in front of the right people at the right time with the right message. That was a lot. So to go back to our example then, let's say our pharma software, let's just make it simple and say that our main value prop is that we save them like 25% of their R&D time and money spent. So, but what we're saying is we could potentially segment and then tweak that message to different groups of pharma companies based on how it's going to be more valuable to them. Does that make sense? And then we're going to put like the next step if to just basically get that message in front of the relevant people from each of those pharma companies in each group, however that may be, a yarn can or an ad on LinkedIn. Correct. And so therefore, if you've nailed, as you said, you know what your VP is and, you're, and you've got it tested and the, the market is resonating with the market and it's sufficiently unique enough to that cluster or to that individual account, then you can then work on the creative around that, as you said, and then decide where best to channel that creative and also it's not just where to channel it's how to channel so for example we may well think well look pharma 25 percent on r&d so therefore we're talking about a specific persona within those that pharma or those pharma accounts which will be the research directors 
For example, I'm making up a title now, it may well be called something else. So therefore, we need to obviously clearly, LinkedIn may be for them, but it may well not be. Not everyone is on LinkedIn, believe it or not. And so it may well be that there are publications, it may well be that there are conferences, it may well be that there are online forums, it may well be that there are peer groups, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, like I said, you know, there's lots of huge, huge events that take place, particularly in North America and in mainland Europe around this whole, whole area of pharma tech. So we'd look for those, we'd find the example, but it may well be that we end up thinking, well, look, these R&D directors have a certain persona. They have a certain way of thinking. They have a certain way of acting. Their decision-making processes like that, because that all comes from our research. So it may well be we go to the set, we go to the process of we might even design some kind of online experience, and that online experience might be an educational experience that they actually go online and we obviously feed them the online experience, and they go through an activity, maybe a game. We may even use some gamification. It may be some activity that we take them through where they can learn about the process, they can discover the challenges, and they can find out that actually they're leaving money on the table. And there's actually a 25% saving when they know that their annual R&D budget is a billion dollars. As you said, it may well be they're leaving $250 million on the table that they could use for other research. So you can press those pain points in many, many different ways. Okay, so we got these pharma research directors on a boat in Cannes exposing them to this message. But what happens next? Well, as you said, you may well decide that you're going to do some peer work, in, if, if can is, is, is the example, which a lot of people do use those kind of examples. So we've got them on a boat in Cannes. We presented them some of the challenges. We've actually done it in a very subtle way. So, for example, we've brought in some peers from GSK, from Roche, and from GlaxoSmithKline, which is the same as GSK, isn't it? So I was just thinking about my farmer. I used to work with a lot of farmers in a previous life. Novartis, for example, is another one that gets in So then we bring in some peers from them who've actually got experience of some of these kind of major R&D initiatives who've actually come across some of the major challenges and have actually come up with some of the solutions on their own. And it may well be that these pharma companies aren't even customers of ours, but they've got such a reputation in the market that they are keen to share their experience. So we bring them together do we pay them or do they come just because they want to be on the boat? It may well be that it's sufficient just to, because there is an awful lot of legislation around that now, around what is allowed and not allowed. We tread very carefully. We'd be very sure to make sure that we weren't crossing any boundaries. And it may well be that we can offer them a small retribution or whatever, but the remuneration, but um, that would be all come out in the wash. And then obviously we'd have that kind of event, which provides some more scenarios and there'd be lots of t- activities for them to actually spend more time together, whether that's a dinner or a lunch or some kind of activity, or going to visit Antibes or Cannes or Saint-Tropez or whatever. And then they all head home to their respective countries, very happy, having learned a lot. He then obviously is the follow-up, and, and that's part of the, what I said about the account experience, is how do you follow up? Because if you have a big bang moment, like a Cannes event that costs a lot of money, costs a lot of time, you've got to follow up afterwards. So therefore, then we've got our account directors all primed. We've given them the right material. We've given them what we call like an account manifesto, which is a personalized document that kind of documents where that customer or potential customer is today, what the future landscape looks like, what the potential solutions are out there, and a kind of a vision of how they could be in the future. So that kind of account manifesto would be given to our account directors and our SDRs, and they would be then following up with all those attendees, looking to see what they learned, looking to see how much they enjoyed it, 
trying to get some feedback from them, looking to establish meetings, you know, saying, hey, I'm going to be in Basel next week. Would you like to catch up? We can sit down and go through the account manifesto, blah, blah, blah. So then you follow up. So it's that combination, as I mentioned, online, offline, digital, physical, peer group, your account director, that kind of motion will take the account through the account experience and hopefully to the most important thing, which is a meeting booked and a conversation had. It seems like attribution should be relatively easy here, right? Because you know the 100 or so people that we're trying to get in touch with and we can track whether we speak to them and obviously whether they buy. Is there any challenges around attributing the value of ABM? Well, as you just said, Tom, if you said you got 40 accounts or 39 accounts and you got no relationship with whatever, you then put them through an ABM motion during 12 months or 18 months and at the other end, you get six new customers from those 39 accounts. It's pretty safe to say that the ABM motion was responsible. Whether it was the can events, the arguments of the account director, the quality of the account manifesto, the digital online gamification that we put in front of them, it's everything. So the important thing, and that's the beauty of account-based marketing compared to perhaps other marketing strategies, is if you have no relationship with a customer or a potential customer and you do convert them, then odds are that the work that you did with your sales team, which is really important because obviously ABM is a joint effort with sales, what you did together has what moved the dial. Anything else that we need to add on to the end of the story, or is that the final step reviewing how many deals we've closed? Well, the first one, deals closed, you tend to do some measurements around deals closed, the time it took to close a deal compared to a non-ABM account, which is an A-B testing of ABM. It's say, hey, we took these guys through, we didn't take these guys through. These guys take 18 months, these guys take nine months. What happened? That's number one. Number two, the average size of the deal tends to be bigger because you've done an awful lot more work at the beginning to make sure the accounts that you're looking to target are the right accounts, as opposed to a wider accounts that may or may not be the right accounts. So you tend to have bigger deals because of ABM. You tend to close quicker, and you tend to have a long, well, your shorter sales cycle, as I mentioned, those are the key ones. I think then the sale or the conversion is just a start, because I tell most people that ABM never stops. Once you start doing ABM, you don't turn it off. It's always on. So the next step then is how do you grow the account? Because you've won it, which is marvelous. But if you win Novartis or you win GSK, that's only the start. These guys are multi, multi-billion dollar companies, multi-location, multi-discipline. Your solution may well be great for one part, but it may well have benefits in other parts. Or indeed, your own R&D department to work on some other fantastic products that you could go into those customers and start showing those to. So I was talking to one customer the other day and they said, look, the problem we've got is that we're a big company. We're constantly creating new products and we're constantly buying new companies. So if we're constantly creating new products and we're constantly buying new companies, we've got to constantly keep updating our customers on what we've got. So therefore they use ABM to constantly have that dialogue with the customer, say, hey, you've got this problem. Your left leg's hurting, your right arm's hurting your back of your head's hurting, I've got a solution, I've got a solution. So you're having that constant solution challenge, challenge, solution, pain, problem. And that's when your account directors come into the fore. That's when your great ABM from what we call customer lifecycle marketing comes into the fore. And that's when you have this kind of constant conversation with the customer. ABM and never stops. There we go. That's the tagline. There you go. Declan. Thank you so much for coming on, basically sharing all the magic. We're obviously going to link to Strategic ABM, which is the company that you're CMO of below. We'll also link to your LinkedIn profile. Anything else we should link to? 
No, that's fine. I'm pretty busy on LinkedIn like you as well, Tom. So people can find me on there. There's two of us, two Declan Mulkeen. There's me, the CMO, and there's a doctor who's quite famous, actually. So I'm not the doctor. We'll get that right when we link as well. We shouldn't mess that up. But yeah, that was a different episode and that was a different way of running things. But I definitely feel like for me, ABM now is less of a dark art and I understand it more. So Declan, thanks so much for your time. Not at all, Tom. Thank you. Okay, how about that? We're on the yacht in Cannes with Declan and Strategic ABM. Thank you so much, Declan, for that masterful overview. I now feel like ABM is less of a dark art. We must also give a shout out though to Elena Hengel, a great listener for B2B Marketers, is one of the marketing podcasts I listen to every week. Now, Elena is the, the vice president of marketing at Marketing Architects. They're an all-inclusive TV agency that rebuilt the traditional agency model to help brands drive profitable growth. Thank you so much, Elena and the Marketing Architects. Of course, shout out to Fame for producing this show. If you're interested, go to fame.so, request a proposal. And of course, thank you for listening.